Well, good evening, and welcome back to our study on Elisha in the Old Testament. We're ready for our second lesson, and I've entitled this one, Elisha's Request. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to chapter 2 of 2 Kings, and uh, in just a moment we'll start reading in verse number 1, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 1. A little bit of background first. Um, we've got two main characters in our, in our story, at this point of our story anyway. The first is Elijah, and his uh, ministry is coming to a close. We're not exactly sure how long he ministered, but about 20 years he worked in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's about to be taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. His successor, Elisha, uh, has been following Elijah around for about four years. He was anointed at the latter portion of 1 Kings, and now his own ministry is about to begin. But first, Elijah has got to pass from the scene. There is a, a bit of a transition going to take place. Made me think of uh, my own life uh, two years ago this month. I uh, transitioned, uh, or as I put it, repurposed from being the head of a school to um, a, uh, a semi-retirement kind of position uh, as a Bible teacher. And during that time of transition, there were all kinds of good things that happened and some things that were a bit more disconcerting. And I am certain that in the life of Elisha, the same was happening. There was a sense of excitement about his coming ministry and yet a, a sense of, uh, of concern about uh, Elijah being gone. Um, Elijah had just had a, a great and marvelous uh, experience calling down fire from heaven and uh, provoking uh, Ahab and his wife uh, over spiritual matters, and he's fled to Horeb in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, and uh, just before he anoints Elisha, he, he uh, Elijah, begins to whine about how he thinks he's the only prophet left. And in point of fact, a few verses after he says, I am the only one left, God says, no, wait a minute. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So, so what uh, was being expressed was God giving a clarity to the fact that Elijah was not the only prophet. There were uh, schools of prophets during that time. Uh, these, uh, these communities were where prophets lived and worked and learned how to, how, to, how, to, how to preach, how to teach, how to interpret the law, how to stand for God in a variety of of circumstances. And so these prophets uh, are going to become a, a key uh, a partner in Elisha's uh, ministry. Maybe it'd be good to take a moment and talk about what's, what is an Old Testament prophet. Well, that, that term has real broad meaning in the Old Testament. In a, in a general sense, it just means someone who is a spokesman or a spokeswoman for God. Um, we think of the word prophet, and we think of the 16 prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, 
in, in our Old Testament. We have recorded their prophecies, so we think of them as the prophets. But that term was used for all kinds of people. Uh, Moses, Abraham, even Miriam and Deborah uh, were considered prophets. Um, Asaph, the musician, uh, we have some of his work in the book of Psalms, was referred to as a prophet. And Elijah and Elisha are both called prophets. Now, the, the word prophet comes from three different Hebrew words. The first one um, is an interesting word. It just means to bubble forth. Or, or to announce. So one of the main jobs of a prophet was to be a mouthpiece for God. Um, in, a, in a sense, he was forth-telling the things of God. But there are two other words, and both of those come from a root that means to see, S-E-E. And it's the idea that a prophet was given a vision uh, from God and was able then, with that vision, to foretell or predict the future on behalf of the Lord. Um, bear in mind that this fourth or this foretelling rather had to be 100% accurate uh, according to Deuteronomy 18 or it was very clear that at no point was that prophet to be considered as a spokesman for God. So Old Testament prophets coming uh, in this school of prophets, they would be people who you and I would know as prophets, excuse me, as preachers or teachers pastors, uh, maybe even poets, and in a certain sense, historians. Um, these are the people, in a very general sense, who represented God to the people, unlike the priest who represented the people to God. These schools then, these schools of prophets, were dotted all over Israel. Uh, one of them was in uh, Gilga, which is the place along the River Jordan where the Israelites first entered the promised land. One was in the town of Bethel, and Bethel was uh, Samuel's hometown. Perhaps the very first school of prophets occurred there. And then just 12, hour, or 12 hours, 12 miles to the east was Jericho. And we know Jericho. That was the, first, the site of Joshua's first major victory in, in Joshua chapter 6. And then just six miles further from that, we're back to the River Jordan. So in our passage in 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, we see that that's what's going on. There is a circuit, if you will, a circle that Elijah and Elisha apparently traveled. And they went from school to school to school ministering to these young prophets. So with that in mind, let's pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 2. It says, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgah. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets, the school of the prophets at Bethel, came out to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yeah, I know, Elisha replies, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, but do not speak of it. 
Verse 6, Then Elisha, Elijah says to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. So let me let me take a, a pause here and, and say that it seems it was common knowledge among those prophets that God was going to take Elijah uh, up, at least uh, take him away. They may not have known the details, but they're certainly uh, anticipating that he is going to be with, with the Lord. The whirlwind is interesting that's mentioned in verse 3. Um, a whirlwind in the scripture is a symbol of God's incredible power. And there are several places, including Isaiah 29, that talk about the power of God as seen in a whirlwind. So let's follow the dialogue here just a little bit between these uh, two great men. Um, Elijah to Elisha, he says, stay here. Uh, the Lord has sent me to, and then he names those those three cities. In verse 2, in verse 4, and verse 6, he repeats that. So why is Elijah saying to Elisha, stay put, buddy, you can't come with me? Well, uh, commentators disagree. Perhaps um, uh, some would suggest that Elijah just wanted some time alone with God. He just wanted to pull aside and, and spend some personal time with Yahweh. That's possible, but more likely he was testing the resolve of, of Elisha. So then let's go to the, comment, the conversation from Elisha to Elijah. His response in each of those uh, three cases, in, in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 6, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. I'm not going anywhere. Um, this, this whole dialogue reminded me so much of the, of the conversation that took place in the book of Ruth. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and find Ruth uh, and find the, the very first chapter in Ruth. Let me turn there. Ruth chapter 1. Joshua Judges Ruth. There we go. Ruth chapter 1. So Naomi is a, a, a Moabite, and she's going to return. Excuse me, she's, yeah, she is going to return to uh, Israel. And um, she's not a Moabite. She's going to return to Israel. At any rate, she's going to leave behind uh, her two daughters-in-law. You probably know the story. Um, right there in verse number 16, after Naomi is told both of her, her daughter-in-laws to go back, She's, she said, hey, guys, you're not going to get any more sons out of me. Uh, the one daughter uh, kisses her mother-in-law uh, goodbye. But, but the Bible says in verse 14 that Ruth clung to her. And, and Naomi says, hey, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. You go on back. Verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Um, there is a sense of commitment coming out of Elisha uh, at this point in our story, very reminiscent of Ruth's commitment uh, to her mother-in-law. And there's a similar uh, sentiment expressed by one of David's 
um, mighty men, uh, uh, Ittai, the Gittite, in uh, 2 Samuel 15, says something similar to what Ruth does. He says, as surely as the Lord lives and as my king lives, wherever my Lord and king may be, whether it means by life or by death, there your servant will be. Um, there is a, 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 a level of commitment uh, to Elijah expressed by Elisha in this passage that's, that's noteworthy. He does not want to leave him. He's not going to leave him, even though he's been told three times to do so. So then the company of the, the prophets speak up, and they say to Elisha, Hey, don't you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? And they repeat that three times in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7. I'm wondering exactly what Elisha's reaction would have been to those statements. Um, he already knew in general about it, about it. The very first part of the chapter suggests that. So now when they keep bringing it up, does, does that stir up sadness uh, or fear? Is, is Elisha uh, worried and unsettled about, about becoming a leader of all of these prophets? What's, what's going on? What was the reaction inside of his heart? And I couldn't help but think of all the, the disciples, the apostles in the upper room the night before Jesus died when he announced that he was leaving. And you, uh, you remember that they were very upset, uh, so much so that Jesus went on in very clear details to, to promise them that, that he was not going to leave them alone. Let me read you part of John chapter 14, the chapter after he's announced his departure. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. He goes on and says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. And then, and then a little further down, he promises in verse uh, 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter or counselor or advocate to be with you forever. There is a relationship that, that uh, is being suggested in the life of Elisha to Elijah that, that reminds me of the kind of relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. We're not being left alone in spite of what the company of prophets might have been saying. So the story continues. We're back in uh, 2 Kings now. The story continues with Elijah leading the two of them now across the river. Um, they're going across the River Jordan, and it's a bit of a, a, a symbolic uh, move. They're going away from the side of the river where all the settlements were, the villages and small towns, to, to the other side, which was really just wilderness and desert. Um, there, there were a number of experiences in the life of Elijah that were similar to this, uh, the going into the wilderness. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, he's at um, a ravine called the Kareth Ravine, and that's the one where the ravens actually feed him. He's hiding by the brook down there. There, there are a number of other examples where the wilderness suggests um, scary territory, if you will, even in the life of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, 
his temptation took place in the wilderness. But Elisha is, or Elijah is leading Elisha to go over the River Jordan. Uh, in we'll look down in uh, verse number eight. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, verse seven ended with Elijah and Elisha stopping at the Jordan. So verse eight, Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and he struck the water with it. The water water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry land. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? So Elijah leads them to the other side of the river. Now he does he does so by taking his cloak and rolling it up and and striking the water with it, and the water parts. You can't help but think of Moses parting the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Um, he he, he uh, used his staff, and the water parted, and the children of Israel got to walk uh, through the Red Sea on dry land. And, and God used Joshua um, in, in Joshua chapter 3 to come over the River Jordan on dry land. Again, it was divided when the ark got to the center of the, of the river. So the mantle is a symbol of authority, much like the staff or the ark. And, and he's demonstrating his immense power, his spiritual power, by dividing the water and letting them walk to the other side. When they get there, he turns and asks Elisha, what can I do for you? You have maintained your statement of commitment I told you to go away three times. You responded three times. You would not. You've been through this this uh, experience uh, right with me. So let me ask you now: what what can I do for you before I'm taken up from you? So Elisha is now going to answer Elijah, and his answer is, "Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. A double portion of your spirit." Now, I, I don't know about you, but twice as much of anything that's good sounds really great. Um, double the chocolate chips in a, in a recipe of chocolate chip cookies, and I'm really happy. Or offer me a free night for every night that I stay in a really nice hotel. Great. Love that. Or, or participate in some sort of a, a fundraising where someone's giving matching gifts. So, For every dollar you give, another dollar is given on your behalf. These are all really good things, doubling up. But what Elisha asks for is a double portion of God's Spirit. Now, there's really three possibilities of explanations of what he's really asking for. The first one uh, is, is I'll call it a, a quantitative kind of request. Um, it's based on the fact that he had seen Elijah uh, be responsible for or create or, or have happen around him, you know, eight major miracles. And we found out last week in our first lesson that in, in point of fact, Elisha is going to end up having twice that amount of miracles in his ministry. So it is possible that he was looking for a, a volume kind of thing. I don't really think so, but it is possible. A second, and many commentators believe this is the answer, 
is that Elisha clearly understood the principle of inheritance. So the Jews understood that when a father died, his, his legacy, his possessions, were divided among his sons. And they were divided in a certain way. They were proportioned out in a, in a certain way. Excuse me. So if a man had two sons, he would divide out his possessions uh, in thirds. And the oldest son, <coughs> pardon me, the oldest son would get two portions. It was called the double portion for the oldest son. So many commentators are looking at this and saying, well, what really Elisha is doing is in recognition of the way that the, the inheritances were handled uh, among the Jews, he's just asking to be considered the successor. He's the oldest, quote-unquote, and for that should receive a, a double portion. That's very possible, and I get it, but I really think there's a third possible explanation, and I'm going to call it the qualitative request. I think Elisha had an understanding of the immense scope of the ministry that was ahead of him. And he realized at the depth of his soul that he was, he was over his head, that he desperately needed God's help, that there was no way on his own he could accomplish the work that God had called him to do. And the only way he could move forward is if he had a boatload of God's power. And so he expresses it by asking for a double portion it made me think of the request that Solomon made in 1 Kings 3 when he was uh, becoming king of Israel. He says in, in 1 Kings 3, he says, uh, verse 7, Now, uh, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased with that and in fact gave it to him. He gave him wisdom. He gave him discern discernment. Solomon realized he couldn't do the job without God's help. And I think that's exactly what's happened here. I think Elisha realizes the weight of the ministry that's being given to him and his own understanding of himself, his own gifts, his own abilities. And he says, Lord, I got I to gotta have your help. I need a double portion. Now, Elijah responds to Elisha and says, well, you've, you've asked for a hard thing. Essentially, he's saying that this, this request that you've made it's, it's one that, that only God can grant. And so he says, as we read further back in 2 Kings 2 now, uh, you have asked a difficult thing, verse 10. Elijah said, yet, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. So he's got to have physical contact. He's got to be seeing. He's got to be focused on Elijah, on Elijah, uh, as he is taken in order to get his, his hard request granted. Verse 11 says now that they're, they're going to walk along 
and they're going to talk together, and suddenly something's going to happen. Um, Elijah is going to be taken. Now, he's taken up in a whirlwind. Let's, let's read it. As they were talking along, or as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. All right, Elijah is now being taken up into heaven. He's taken in a whirlwind. Um, uh, some of the songs and, and phrases uh, that we've grown up with, that he was taken up in a chariot of fire, are just not accurate. The chariot and, and the fire are separating Elijah from Elisha. They are the means by which God separates them. They, they symbolize the, the protection and even the manifestation of God himself. Fire is often a, a sign or a symbol of God's presence in the Bible. And, and God's using that now as he takes up uh, Elijah in a whirlwind. Now remember, the only other person to escape uh, what we'll call normal death uh, to this point uh, is Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. So what's Elisha's reaction? What, what happens when this incredible moment takes place? Uh, a chariot of fire, horses of fire, a whirlwind. It should have been loud and dramatic and large and uh, in, in some ways a, a scary moment. So what's his reaction? What does Elisha uh, say or do? Well, he cries out. Um, well, first off, his eyes are still on Elijah. So the requirement in order to get the grant of his request of a double portion has been met. His eyes were on his master. Um, uh, right at the end, when they needed to be, he was focused on what God was doing. Um, makes you think about uh, Peter when he went walking on water uh, in the account of Matthew chapter 14. We can see when his eyes were on Jesus, he had no problem. He stood up on the, on the top of the waves. But as soon as his eyes turned to the wind, or, or maybe to the size of the waves, then, then he began to drown. Um, it's really important as you and I take on the responsibilities of ministries in our lives that our eyes are clearly focused on the Lord. And he cries out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Um, that, that is an interesting statement. And what it's doing is expressing the extreme value that was being placed on that prophet. He's kind of comparing the prophet versus the chariots and the horses. And, and, and it's really a, a comparison that, that is, uh, is weak. It's, it's the focus on the prophet. And the same phrase, by the way, is used about the time of Elisha's death in 2 Kings 13. Jehoash, the king, uses it. And so it's a way of, of setting apart these remarkable men of God. So Elisha, his reaction, he's going to tear his clothes, which of course was a sign of deep mourning in Israel. If you saw uh, someone's clothing ripped, you knew that they were in mourning. 
He's going to do something else. Let's pick the story back up in verse 13. He's going to pick up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and he struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. He picked up the mantle that fell. When the Lord took Elijah up in the whirlwind, the, the mantle that he had used to symbolically suggest that Elisha was his successor, it fell off his shoulders. Elijah had a choice. He didn't have to pick it up, but he did. He went over, he picked up the mantle, he embraced his role, his responsibilities, and then he takes and uses that symbol of authority to once again part the waters of the River Jordan, and he walks back over on dry land. Verse 15, the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching then said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him, and they, bow, and they bowed to the ground before him. He, the look, they said, we, your servants, are fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too ashamed to refuse. So he said, okay, send them. They sent fifty men who searched for three days but couldn't find him. When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to him, Didn't I tell you not to go? So the company of the prophets thought that maybe Elijah had just slipped away, as he was known to do, was off by himself somewhere, and they needed to go find him. And they searched to make certain that he was really gone to glory. Now the rest of the chapter has two short stories. Two miracles that are, are meant to authenticate at least initially, uh, Elisha's position now as the prophet in, in, northern, in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. The first authentication comes through the healing of the, of the, um, uh, the well in Jericho. And uh, the men of the city said to Elisha, Look, uh, the town is well situated, but the water is bad, and therefore the land's unproductive. And so he said, Well, bring me a bowl, and he put, put salt in it. And then he went to the spring and he threw the salt in it and he said, This is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And, and the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word that Elisha has spoken. So he had his very first miracle, um, and, that, and that miracle was to put salt, which at that time was a preservative, and also a substance used to draw out flavor and meat and so on. But it was used to heal the springs of, of Jericho so that they could be drank. I'm told, by the way, that even today, uh, the water of Jericho is drinkable, but it's kind of brackish uh, in taste. Well, then there's a second authentication of, of Elisha in verse 23. So Elisha's leaving now the area of Jericho, and he's going to go back up to Bethel, again, making that circuitous route. He's walking along the road, and some youths come out of the town, and they jeer at him. And they, they, they cry out, go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. Now, first, a, a, a clarification or, a, or two. The youth, that makes it sound like it's young kids. Now, these, these are older 
uh, young men. Uh, in fact, um, that same word that's used in this text uh, has referred in other places in the Bible to to people in their late 20s, even late 30s. So these are younger men, but not children. And secondly, the jeering that they're doing is pretty sub- substantive. It doesn't look at in English, go up, old bald head. Doesn't sound like much of a slang. But um, first off, uh, baldness was often a sign of leprosy. So when you were calling someone a bald head, you were referring to the fact that they were unclean, which was a big deal. Um, secondly, uh, what they're doing is showing disrespect for someone who is their elder, who is a, a person in authority over them. And such disrespect was a huge issue for the Israelites. In fact, in, in Deuteronomy 27, where God lists all the curses that ought to come down on various people in various situations of life, one of them is, Cursed is the man who disowns, or excuse me, dishonors his father or mother. And, and, the, and the curse goes on. So, so this was a big deal. These boys, I shouldn't call them boys, these, you know, excuse me, young men are, are really breaking a major uh, uh, commandment. So Elisha in verse 24 is going to turn around and look at them, and he's going to call down a curse on them in the name of the Lord, just exactly what Deuteronomy 27 calls for. Now, but note that he calls down the curse on them, but it is God who brings the two bears out of the woods, and those bears end up mauling 42 of these young men. Um, it's not Elisha who's who's murdering these uh, these uh, rebellious uh, men. It's actually uh, God who has chosen to authenticate his position, his authority, uh, in such a dramatic way. And in verse 25, uh, apparently Elisha began his solo ministry then, traveling from the River Jordan to to uh, Mount Carmel, which would have been you know kind of a northeast trip, and then he turned around and came back down to Samaria. So when we finish this story, like we finish any story that I'm teaching anyway, I think it's good to stop and ask the question, so what? So what that Elisha assumed the mantle from Elijah, becoming the, becoming the, the chief prophet in Israel? What, what is the big deal about his request? What can you and I learn from it? Well, don't miss the fact that Elisha was incredibly wise, very insightful. He knew himself. He knew that he couldn't do the work that God had called him to do on his own, that the responsibilities of his life were just too much without the help, the direct help of the Lord. And he expressed it by asking for that double portion of God's Spirit. You know, in our own lives, in my life and in yours, regardless of what responsibilities that we have uh, in the home, outside of the home, in a work environment, as parents, as spouses, as friends, as workers, as, as spiritual uh, leaders in our churches and ministries, it doesn't really matter. But we dare not, dare not be dependent on our own strength. Or, or, or dependent on our own abilities, or feeling like our own gifts can get the, get the job done. We desperately need God's Spirit in an everyday, every, every occurrence kind of way. Jesus promised that 
another comforter would come for the disciples when he left in John 14. And then he turned around in Acts chapter 2 and provided the Holy Spirit. When that violent wind came from heaven and the apostles were equipped to do the job that, that God had called them to, it was a picture of, of the same gifts that are available to you and I, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every person who's named the name of Christ as Lord and Savior has residing in him the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that descended upon those disciples in Acts chapter 2 descends on each of us when we come to Christ in saving faith. And when, when you think about that, the natural conclusion is to notice that by His Spirit, we are equipped to do the job that He's called us to do. Whether it's the job of a parent that seems so overwhelming at times, or the role of a spouse, which is so challenging, or, or roles in ministry or in a work world, you and I have been strengthened. We have been rooted. We have been established. We have been given power. According to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, so that we can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Elisha's double portion is our double portion. And just let me leave you with this thought uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. When Jesus was giving the marching orders to his disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The word power there is the same word from which we get dynamite. And that is the same power that you and I wake up residing in our hearts every morning. We have power, dynamite, a double portion of it, if you will. All we need to do is use it. Well, there are some discussion questions that I put in the notes. Let me just mention them to you. The first question is, do you crave a double portion of God's Spirit? What do you need Him for? Are you dependent? Do you feel empowered in your Christian walk? Do you serve Him with confidence? Why do you think that God called the Spirit a comforter? Is He also a guide? And how does that prayer in Ephesians 3 apply to your life today? Well, thanks for listening. It wouldn't have been any fun without you.